0: Second Corinthians 5, verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, We are of good courage, I say, and rather prefer to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Father, I pray that Your Word would be not only instructive this morning, but revelational. That it would increase faith. That it would open our eyes to truth and give us a clearer understanding. Father, we enter into some of the shadowy areas and we pray that You will shine Your light and help us to understand these things better. And especially, Father, may these understandings, these revelations, touch our hearts in such a way that we will not fear the big question, that we will not fear what is coming, but we might be among those who are assured. Bless the teaching of your word to our hearts today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a bombshell weekend. A bombshell weekend in politics. It continues to very tragically be bombshell timing in Syria and other hot spots in the world. But I want you all to understand that all these bombshells, these political things taking place, all that rushes to the very front of the news cycle, they're all distractions. Because there's a greater bombshell that people don't want to talk about. Uh, A larger issue. A greater reality that we would just as soon ignore as understand. I'm talking about, of course, Halloween. Tomorrow is Halloween. (laughs) Listen, I want to give you a little background, a little understanding, because it actually does relate exactly to this bombshell question, this issue that we will really get to in a moment. In the 8th century, Catholic Pope Gregory established All Saints Day to take place on November the 1st. As a time to remember those who, according to catholic.org, those who have attained heaven. Catholic.org goes on to say, It should not be confused with All Souls Day, dedicated to those who have died and have not yet reached heaven. With all due respect to my Catholic friends, the Apostle Paul would clearly disagree with that theology. That there are some when they die that go straight to heaven and, and some when they die, well, they, they're on the way. They perhaps will get there. They will enter maybe a purgatory and pay for the rest of their sins not covered by Jesus on the cross and make their way on to heaven later. Uh, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And there's really no way to spin that. It is what it is. It is very clear. Now, All Saints Day, as a holiday, as an observance, was placed on November 1st, again by Pope Gregory, to co-opt the Gaelic festival of Samhain. Samhain is uh, that festival that marks the end of the harvest on October 31st and the beginning of winter, or the dark half of the year. Samhain is an interesting festival, Because on this night, the Celts believed that the line between the world of the living and the world of the dead became blurry. And in that blurriness, they believed that the spirits of the dead returned to wreak havoc on their villages and on their crops. So in response to this, the people lit bonfires. They dressed in costumes to try and and ward off these gallivanting ghosts. The whole idea of trick-or-treating and dressing in costumes today draws from that pagan festival. That's where it comes from. So you parents of children who are going to take them trick-or-treating tomorrow night, just understand the the pagan influence, and, and, you know, that's fine. Whatever you want to do there. It's funny, we were talking about this after first service, and there are pretty much two extremes. There are those who do and those who don't, you know, in, in the church. And, and, and I still come back to, let's be reasonable, let's think these three things through, and let's just understand at least the history of where these things came from. The idea of trick-or-treats is play-acting, literally, the spirits of the dead coming back and playing tricks on the Celtic people. And so they would, again, dress in these costumes. Also, because of the presence of these peevish poltergeists, the people would go to their druids, the Celtic priests, believing that they could make predictions on this dark night. Because that veil was blurry, they believed that the priests could converse with the dead in the age-old pagan practice of necromancy. And so that's what was celebrated originally on October 31st, Samhain, then changed into Halloween, All Hallows' Eve. Halloween is just the Scottish kind of version of that phrase. God has some definite feelings about this history, about this behavior in the world. Let me share a couple of passages with you. One is Deuteronomy 18, and you can turn there if you'd like, all the way back to the beginning of your scriptures, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, fifth book in the Bible. Turn to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18. And check this out. Deuteronomy 18, verse 9. While you're turning there, I'm going to go ahead and read. You can catch up with me. Moses says, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. We're talking about human sacrifice there. Don't do it, he says. One who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. Why would God place such a harsh rule on poor Harry Potter? Because the Lord knows to listen to any source other than him is a deceit. It's not real. It's a falsehood. It's lying. At best, it's emptiness. At worst, it is deception. And that's why the very next verse, he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your countrymen. You shall listen to him. And Moses was prophesying of Jesus. You shall listen to him. I love when Jesus took Peter and and James and John up the mountainside. What we call today the Mount of Transfiguration. It wasn't called that at the time. I believe it was just Mount Hermon. But they go up the side of the mountain. And Jesus, the Bible says, was transfigured before them. That is, they saw Him in this glorious state. He glowed as bright as the sun. And there with Him was Moses and Elijah. And Peter standing there watching all this take place. And he blurts out, Oh Lord, it's good that we're here! This is great. We should build a little tent for Moses and a little tent for Elijah and a little tent for Jesus. And a voice came out of the heavens that said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. Why is God so adamant about listening to Jesus? Because the voice of Jesus is the voice of truth. Because when you listen to Jesus, you are hearing the truth. Not all the deceptions of this world in which we live. And so they were forbidden, the Israelites, from engaging in these practices, knowing that one was going to be raised up from among them, one whom they could listen to. Now the prophet Isaiah, who talks an awful lot about Jesus, he wrote this, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19, When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, Should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, he says. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. What does that mean? It means they're in darkness. It means they're just not hearing what's real, what's true. Isaiah, uh, Moses, Paul, they set up a contrast here that is absolutely clear. You can consult the spirits of the dead in the dark night and get nowhere, or you can consult the word of the living God in the light of day. You can hear what is true. And that is the desire of the Lord. But, back to the bombshell. Are there really ghosts? Spirits roaming around, the disembodied spirits of the dead, haunting towers and castles and and dark houses. Do they really come out on this night? Lost souls in limbo, the walking dead. There are angels. There are demons. There are principalities. There is absolutely a spiritual world that we should be aware of, and the Bible is clear on these things. However, listen, understand. The very idea of ghosts or spirits of the dead is not legitimate. Old dead Uncle Fred will not come back for a visit. He can't. I'll explain why this morning as we go forward. But it raises this, this most important bombshell question of all of our human existence. While children are trick-or-treating and people are going to Halloween parties and dressing up in costumes, of course certain costumes you can't dress up in on certain college campuses this year, uh, you'll get in trouble for that, but people are doing all these kind of silly light-hearted things and it ignores the real question underneath it all and that is, do you know where you're going to go? Do you? Do you know where you're going to go? You can shrug off the question of your mortality. And people do. Go all the way back to the 4th century B.C. Epicurus of the Epicurean philosophy. He wrote, Death does not concern us, because as long as we exist, death is not here. And once it does come, we no longer exist. So you can try and shrug it off, that's what Epicurus did, be Epicurean, enjoy the delights of life and don't worry about it, just don't think about it. Or, you can try to sweeten death up with superficial notions, like Cicero. In the first century BC, he said, the life of the dead is placed in the memory of the living. Oh, that's beautiful. You've probably heard something similar at a funeral. He or she will live on in our memory. That's wonderful. But what happens when your memory starts to fade? And the truth is, people die and they are forgotten. Oh, maybe not by those who are closest to the person, but it's remarkable how quickly we move on with life once someone has passed away. And so to say, well, they live on in our memory, they don't live on not in that way? That doesn't make sense. Now, other people would, rather than shrugging it off or trying to sweeten it up, they'll, they'll you know, they'll joke about it. Like that great 20th, 21st century uh, philosopher, Woody Allen, he said, There are things worse in life than death. Have you ever spent an evening with an insurance salesman? <laughs> He makes a point. (laughs) If you are an insurance salesman, my apologies. Ultimately, here's the thing. Here's the reality that everyone avoids. We will all face death. Unless you have to be in the rapture of the church, but that's not what we're talking about right now. Death comes to every man, to every woman. It is an unavoidable fact of life. I've told you before, the statistics are stunning. (laughs) Everybody dies. And we can ignore that or laugh it off or shrug it off, but everybody is going to face it. Job said in Job 30.23, For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house of meeting for all the living. The house of meeting for all the living. That's where we will all go. Regardless of personal beliefs, that much must be clear. All will face this issue of death. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is strangely cavalier about death, the way he talks about it. It's not a big deal to Paul. And yet within these cavalier words are words of great comfort. Remember, this 2 Corinthians is a comforting letter. And so Paul comforts with these words. Now, let me give you a little background, a little more to think about as we go into 2 Corinthians 5. Paul has been facing death daily. He knows that of which he speaks. He is a man who has experienced the face of death, who has come right up to it. In fact, in my opinion, he was stoned to death and raised. Didn't just survive a stone, but actually flatlined, but then came back. Uh, and I'll talk about that later in, in this study, not this morning, but later in 2 Corinthians. That Paul faced death daily. The possibility of him dying was never far from his thoughts. Never far from his faithfulness in following Jesus. Because he was always at risk. Paul wrote back in verse 9 of chapter 4. If you look up there. He said, excuse me, we're persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. That word struck down means killed. It's it's felled, as in being felled by a sword in a battle. He says, we're we're struck down. But we're not destroyed. What are you talking about, Paul? Felled, as in killed, but we live on. We have more. There is more than this life. He even says in verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction... Is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Ah, says the skeptic, but that's the problem with you Christians. See, that's the issue. You believe in things that are not seen. You have to base it all on faith. You don't have your concrete evidence to know that which you say you believe. Let me ask you this. Do you think non-Christians don't believe in things they can't see? Was anyone there across four billion years to witness evolution? Then how can you say that that's how it happened? Well, I I think that's, that's what I believe. That's your faith. You don't see it, but you believe it. And even in everyday life, think about how common it is for us to believe that which we do not see. We turn the faucet and we expect the water to flow. We just know it's going to come out. Now I know most of you are aware that there's something behind the wall there, but think about your kids. They just flew me away as I was growing up and discovered there were pipes. The water actually came. I just thought, and it came out. You know? Or what about flipping the switch? You assume the light's going to come on. You don't think about the wires and the, and the connections and the sparks of electricity. You just assume, oh yeah, flip a switch, the light's going to come on. All day, every day you do these things. You don't even think about it. You tap the key. And you expect somehow the wireless signal to connect all across the globe. You don't see that. But you believe it. You trust in it. Every single day, every single person accepts and believes in unseen truths in life. But if we dig a little deeper, there are pipes under the sink. There are wires in the wall. There are radio and electromagnetic waves in the air. And yet, all these seemingly unseen things, they are tangible. But here's the problem what Paul is saying here they're tangible, so they're temporary. They're tangible, so they're temporary. Pipes break. Wires fray. Waves get hacked. The tangible, my friends, is temporary. Paul understands that. He's a man who's been broken, he's been frayed, he's been hacked. He's experienced it all, and yet what's remarkable to me is he refers to his life as light and momentary affliction. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had far less happen to me in my life than Paul did. When I look at what he went through, the beatings and the scourgings and the stonings, being chased down everywhere he went, hated by so many, spurned by so many, and yet he refers to it as light and momentary affliction. Not really that big a deal. Because he understands something. He's he's thinking beyond the moment. His resilience in life is informed by his recognition of death. And what is that? Paul knew heaven was just around the corner. He knew it was right there. And when Paul talked about dying, he did not do it with a sour, dour face. When Paul talked about death, he didn't get dark and gloomy. When Paul talked about death, I imagine his face lighting up because he knew where he was headed. And we've talked about before, he even struggled with that. Should I stay here and continue to do the work of the Lord? Or go there and be with the Lord? Oh, that's so much better. I can't wait for that. But this is important, so I'll keep doing this until he brings me there. This was Paul's concept, his understanding. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, if we really think home is elsewhere, and that this life is a wandering simply to find home, why should we not look forward to the arrival? Why wouldn't I be excited about going? When it's time to go, well, let's think about these things. Verse one of chapter five, breaking it down, Paul says, "For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens." Now, the language here is wonderful because Paul uses this phrase "torn down," we, and we know, we know, if the earthly tent which is our house, is torn down. The phrase torn down, it it can mean destroy or demolish. But the Greek word kataluo in the Greek, it it literally is a traveler's word. To tear down a tent is is traveler thinking. Luke 9.12, the same word is used. The twelve came to Jesus and they said, Send the crowd away so that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find kataluo, lodging. Find a place to stay for the night. And they can get themselves something to eat. What Paul is doing here is he is likening death, that specter of greatest human dread, he likens it to something as simple as striking camp. And that's point number one. If you're a note taker, jot this down. Death is striking camp. Death is striking camp. Charles Spurgeon said, "...many people are in great fright about the future." Yet, here is Paul viewing the worst thing that could happen to him with such complacency that he likens it to the pulling down of a tent. Striking camp. Ironically, Paul was a tent maker. So he understood what he was talking about. He would say, using this analogy, he knew the materials that he had to work in as a tent maker. He knew the frailty of the fabric. He knew that it could fray and it could tear even as he would sew it together. And so what Paul's saying is, these bodies here, don't misunderstand. They are temporary housing. They are our pup tents for the time being. They are our housing, but they're not going to last. And we know they won't. But did you catch his language? He says, for we know that if we strike camp. We know if these tents are torn down. We know we have a home awaiting us. We know this. He doesn't say we wish it, or we hope it, or we assume it. Eternal life is not the wishful thinking of a a frail Christian. It is a known reality. Paul says we know it absolutely. How do we know? Hey, listen, when you get the eternal perspective, everything changes. When you start to think like God thinks... Not that we can think like he thinks, but when you start to think with the words of God and the terminology of God, when you begin to begin to get the understanding of God, it changes your perspective such that you look at death and you say, "Yes." you start to see unseen things in a completely new life. We know that we have a home. And you know what else we know? We know Jesus. And the more you know Jesus, the more you realize you really can take Him at His word. You really can believe that He means what He says, and He says what He means, and He's going to do what He said He was going to do. And in John 14, verse 2, He said, "...in my Father's house are many dwelling places." For if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Why, knowing that, would I prefer to live in a torn up tent rather than in a heavenly dwelling, which, by the way, is built by the best carpenter Nazareth ever put out? That's His promise. And we know these things to be true. Verse 2, He says, For indeed, in this house, or in this, this body, this tent, we groan. That word groan is we sigh with grief. Why do we groan, Paul? Longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked Death is striking camp. But secondly, mortality is stark nakedness. Note that. It's an important theological phrase. Mortality is stark nakedness. That's what it is. I was a freshman in high school. 1979, I was in our marching band. I was on the drum line, which was the only really cool way to be in band in high school, at least my high school. I was on the drum line. I was playing the tritoms. And on that particular day, after school, we were all headed out to the field for uh, marching band practice. And I'm walking out to the field in my brand new white Levi's. Cool. Yeah, they weren't bell-bottom, but they were flared, man. Yeah. And I'm walking out there, and, and I really wanted them to, to be bright, you know, gleaming white. And so I had my mom bleach them. Bleach has an interesting impact if you use too much. The leg of my pant caught on the tritoms and a tear began. I say began because it did not stop. It continued right down the leg of my jeans. And then I noticed on the other side a tear emerged. And I began to look at these pants and I'm thinking, I am not going to make it home. You know the, the nightmare scenario where when you were a kid, maybe you had that dream where you got to school and realized you forgot to wear your pants? I lived it. <laughs> I barely made it home alive, and my I literally everything was frayed. It was hilarious. Not in the moment, but and of course when you're running for home in those dreams, the harder you try to run, the slower you go, you know, and the more people are showing up to find that you have no pants on. And that was that was me. Nobody wants to be found stark naked. But you know what? We are. In these bodies, we are. We try to cover it with fashion. We think, hey, I'll get on a motorcycle and I'll put on leather and that'll protect me. We in these bodies are stark, naked, mortal. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, which they were told not to eat, the one rule God gave them, oh, everything else was open, open game. Not that. Just that one tree. Enjoy everything else. And that's where they went. And when they ate that fruit, they immediately realized their frailty. Immediately. Watch this. Genesis 3.7 says, The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed big leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Why did they do that? Now, we often make the assumption they did it because they were embarrassed. Because they were ashamed. But that's not what Adam told God. God comes looking for him. Where are you guys? Genesis chapter 3 verse 10. Adam said, "I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked." Not ashamed, afraid. So I hid myself. The word afraid in the Hebrew is yare. He was yare of Yahweh. <laughs> He was afraid of God, afraid in the moment, afraid that God would find out what they had done? Yes, absolutely, but I believe it was more. For in that moment, when they realized their nakedness, they also understood their mortality. I submit to you for the first time in history, in that moment, mankind, that is Adam and Eve, realized they were vulnerable. They were vulnerable to all the thorns and thistles and threats of this world suddenly... What was protection before was gone. God had warned them, If you eat this, the day that you do this, you will surely die. And it was only by the grace of God that though death entered the world, it took a while. Adam still got to live many years. But death entered the world on that day. Mortality entered the world. And along with mortality comes frailty. Comes vulnerability comes the reality that this body comes apart like that. I think I've told you I was... uh, Another time, this was actually after high school, driving along the road and came upon an accident. And it was awful. Late at night, it was like 2 o'clock in the morning, it was a guy's night out, and, and we're driving back up the freeway, and this accident had just occurred, and what we saw, I don't even like describing, because it horrified me. But I can tell you this, the human body comes apart. We are vulnerable, we are frail, we are stark naked in our mortality. And that's why Paul says we all long to be clothed with immortality. We long to be impervious. We desire to be immortal. I mean, that's why we have myths about it and stories about immortality. People looking for long life, the fountain of youth, Obamacare, whatever they can find. You know, to try to live forever, it's why people go to the gym, it's why we do the diets we do, we want to extend our lives as far out as possible, and man, if we could find the solution to living forever, we would take it. We have it. Eternal life, immortality, the promise of it, verse 4, Paul says, for indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan. Being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will have been swallowed up by life. We talked about this just a few weeks back. As in fact, Paul had talked about this about a year and a half before this letter of 2 Corinthians reached them. And that is that twinkling of an eye transformation. Where death is swallowed up by life. 1 Corinthians 15... Turn back there. It's just a few pages back from where we are. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one. Listen again to this marvelous promise. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We will all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. And the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed... For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is, note this, swallowed up in victory. Swallowed up. Point number three, immortality swallows up mortality. And it's a great description of what will happen to these physical, dying, mortal bodies. They will be swallowed up by that which is eternal, by that which will last. Now, this may be a different perspective. But in John 14, which I already quoted, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Right? That's the, the New American Standard translation of that Greek. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. The King James translation is just a little different. It reads, In my Father's house are many mansions. So a lot of the great hymn writers came along and they wrote songs about mansions. I have a mansion in heaven. I'm going to my mansion. Entire theology has been, has been focused. Mormon theology talks about mansions and levels of heaven. The thing is, the word is not mansions. It doesn't read like that. Dwelling places is actually Monet. Monet, not the artist. Monet, which literally is a place of abode, a place to reside, a place to stay. But understand Jesus' intention with the Word. Monet is only used twice in the New Testament, both times by Jesus and both times in John 14. The first time He says, in my Father's house are many Monets. (laughs) <laughs> Paintings everywhere. No, many <laughs> dwelling places. But then in John 14.23, He uses the same word and says, If anyone loves Me, he'll keep My word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our Monet with him. Our abode. Jesus chose His words wisely, my friends, and the Monet of his, that His Spirit occupies is not a mansion, it's the believer. Might it be when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, in my Father's house are many mansions, what He's saying in my Father's house will be many believers. Many places of abode, many monets, and I actually like the idea of using the Greek word monet, and thinking about the artist, and thinking about artistic works, because that's what you are. Everyone is created as a beautiful work of godly art that He desires to make eternal. That He wants to bring along to that place. Now someone might say, well, man, I thought I had a mansion just over the hilltop. I was looking forward to decorating it. Let me ask you, what do you need a mansion for? In your eternal state, what do you even need a house for? The Greek word for house, oikia, is not used by Jesus there. Again, it's Monet, it's this place of abode. What do I need a house, a roof over my head? Sure, when it's raining cats and dogs here, I I want a a roof over my head, especially if it's raining cats and dogs, because that would be brutal. (laughs) I I want a fire in the fireplace on cold winter nights. I like my house. I like going into my house and feeling that safe kind of protection from the outside world, because (laughs) I'm stark naked otherwise. But that's not necessary. It's unneeded. We are striking camp. We are laying aside stark nakedness because immortality swallows up mortality. Paul says it twice here, 1 Corinthians 15, and Isaiah says it in Isaiah 25, verse 8, God will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. I love it. Sounds great. Sounds beautiful. Sounds glorious. I just wish I could be sure. You know how many times I've had that conversation with believing people, with Christians? I just wish I could be sure. How do we really know, Rick? How do we know? Verse 5. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. A pledge, a down payment, a promise of inheritance, a guarantee that all that we're talking about is legitimate and will come. He has given us His Spirit as a pledge. Number four, if you're taking notes, life is secured by the Spirit. Everlasting life, immortality is secured. The Holy Spirit Himself... You know, this is wonderful. God doesn't just hand us a contract. Here, you you were born again. Here's a little contract saying, hang on to this, don't lose this. You're going to need this to get in. No, He Himself invades the heart of the believer. He sends His own Spirit. His Spirit now becomes the pledge to me, the testimony that I have an inheritance. Paul says in Romans 8.16, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit, that we are children of God. And if children, heirs, also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, we have an inheritance. If indeed we suffer with Him, so that we also may be glorified with Him. And again, even Christians say, I'm uncertain about how that works. You're telling me that the Holy Spirit tells me that I'm saved? Yes. So what do you say, Pastor, to the Christian who says, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not sure I've been saved. To that person, I would say, and I'm not just looking at you, Bill, I just happen to be looking at you, but I'm not talking about you personally. <laughs> to that person, I would say, listen. I don't know that I'm saved. Listen. How do I know the Spirit testifies with my spirit? Shh. Stop talking. <laughs> Less words in your prayer and more listening in your prayer. And if you are uncertain about your salvation and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, very simply, ask God to testify. Ask Him to make you sure. I've told you before, this is not because I'm a pastor. It's not because I've been a Christian for many years. It's just because the Spirit resides in me. I have absolutely zero doubt about where I'm going. Because His Spirit testifies with my Spirit. Well, I don't understand that. A non-believer might say that. A non-Christian might say, I don't get that. That just sounds so mystical. Well, you're going to need the Spirit to hear it. You're going to need to be born again to a life that is eternal to get this. I understand you don't get it. There was a time in my life I didn't get it either. That's not because I'm so bright or so brilliant, but I do have the Spirit of God living in me, telling me day after day, Gotcha. You're saved. I am your pledge. And it's one of the greatest comforts of the Holy Spirit. We call Him, the Bible calls Him, the Paracletos, the Comforter. And one of the greatest comforts is that He pledges our inheritance. He guarantees our salvation. He reminds us and He gives us confident testimony of our birthright. That is if you've been born again. But to me, this is the heart of what Paul is getting at. Look at verse 6. Therefore, being always of good courage. Hey, are you? Are you always of good courage? Well, depends on the day, Rick. I know, right? But what about Paul? No matter what the day was, Paul says, we're of good courage, man. Timothy just got his head beat in, but man, we're of good courage. I'm nursing the, the scourge marks on my back, but we're of good courage, always. How's that possible? Well, they have the Spirit as a pledge. They know heaven's right around the corner. They know that in spite of this stark naked mortality, that immortality is promised. And so he says, we're always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Samhain is wrong. Halloween in its background, not true. Ghost stories are just that, fables. Dear dead Uncle Fred does not come back for a visit. And I've actually talked, talked with a Christian sister who said, I have to ask you about this, Rick. I, Three days after the death of a loved one, I saw them moving through our house. What do you say to that? And I say, demons are good at deception. I didn't say there wasn't a spiritual realm. And I did not say there weren't spiritual beings. But I'll tell you what, the Bible is clear. When you die... If you are absent from the body in Jesus, you are at home with the Lord and you're not popping in for a visit. And the line between the two is un, or impassable. And that's, that's what the Bible actually teaches us. That when a person dies, the Spirit doesn't wander the dark alleyways and, and valleys of this world, nor does it go into purgatory again to prove its worth to eventually get to heaven. And by the way, and I need to bring this up again, because it still remains a confusion for all people, and that is, neither does the Bible teach soul sleep. That is, when a person dies, they sleep in death until the resurrection. That is a grave perspective. (laughs) The Bible teaches something far more immediate, and that is this, the Spirit has a destination. They say home is where the heart is. And if the heart is the spirit of the person, I fully agree because when I die, my spirit goes immediately to be home. It doesn't meander. I don't wander. I don't go looking for the light. Run to the light, Rick! No, I don't. that's not the thing. When I die, and if you have lost Christian brothers and sisters, lost loved ones, their spirit immediately home with the Lord. Yes, the body goes into the grave, but the spirit goes home. That's what Paul's saying. Well, how do we know it's immediate? I mean, how do we know there's not, you know, kind of like a pathway to ultimately get there? Luke 23, 42. Jesus is on the cross. The thief, two thieves with him, but one speaking with him says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, not next week, not, you know, I'll pencil you in, but my calendar's kind of full. Not next year or after a long winter's nap. Today, you will be with me in paradise. My friends, it is immediate. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. What a great word. What a comforting word and encouraging word. And and the immediate point for us this morning is simply this, number five, fifth and final point, home now is separation from home then. I, I want to explain that a little bit, that to be at home in the body, and some of us are way too at home in the body, to be at home in the body is truly absence from the Lord. Now, I can experience God. I can hear him. I have heard him. I can talk to him. I can rely on him. I can read and study his word. I can be with his people. I can have near experiences with the Lord. But in reality, I love him. I know him. But right now, it's like Skype. I get on Skype with my daughter Hannah all the way over in that dark, gloomy state of Wisconsin. And we talk and we laugh. She shows us the baby bump, you know. And and we share life, but we don't really share life. Not like when she was home. We get off Skype and immediately I look at Cheryl, she looks at me and I say, I miss my Hannah. Because it's not the same thing. And there are people in both realms thinking about this. There are Christians who are trying so much, like remember the Corinthian people? were trying to be so hyper-spiritual because they wanted to experience it all right now. And Paul says, you won't. You can't. Because inherent in our mortal lives and in our home of the body, inherent is a longing for our real home. That longing remains. It will not go away until you die or you've been raptured home. So to be at home in the body is absence from the Lord. I am really not in His full presence. I can be in His presence by His Spirit, but not fully. Not like we will be. Faith is the deal. That's why He says we walk by faith and not by sight. See, right now we walk by faith. We believe that which we do not see. Then we will walk by sight because we will see Him just as He is. The Bible's clear about this. Faith, faith is my internal assurance. Faith is, I know everything that I've been sharing with you. I know this to be true. I know it by faith, but it's not a, a wonky blind faith. It's real faith and real truth. It's internal assurance. Faith, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's faith. Sight is not internal assurance, it's external appearance. It's, it's actual literal seeing, being with. Now we walk by faith, then we will walk by sight. Now we walk by faith, but you know what? Let me remind you, all people do. When you have friends of yours who will challenge your Christianity and say, but you're just living by faith. So are they. We all do. The question is not whether we live by faith. The question is, what is your faith in? What do you choose to believe? Because we're all choosing to believe things that our eyes do not see. And now, as a Christian, I walk by faith, assured of all these things, but then it will be by sight. Now, Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 13.12, right now we see... In a mirror, uh, dimly, but then face to face. If Paul was writing today, I think he would have said, now we see by Skype. But then, face to face when we are all at home with the Lord. Now I know in part, he says, then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Again, Paul talking to the Corinthian people who thought they had it all, and he's saying, you're not even halfway there. We've got all wisdom. No, you don't. You only have some. We know everything. No, you don't. You know some things. Then you will know as you are fully known. And as certainly as Jesus walked in history, and we have proof of that. We have more evidence of Jesus walking than just about anybody. We know the historical man, Jesus Christ, walked the earth. We're aware of that. As certainly as He walked in history, that certainly, I can tell you, we will see Him. The Bible says, Zechariah 12.10, They will look upon Me whom they have pierced. Revelation 1.7, Every eye will see Him. That's remarkable writing. The Bible is staking everything on that truth. Every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. 1 John three two. we will see Him just as He is. And so Paul writes in verse 9, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. How can I be pleasing to Him? Very simple. By faith. The Word tells us, Hebrews 11.6, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Understand this whole faith question is God's purpose. People say, you Christians, you just live by faith. Exactly. That's the whole point. God is teaching us a new language. Oh man, I promised I wouldn't say anything about our foreign exchange students, so I'm not going to say her name. Don't look at her. Look, eyes up front. But I'm so impressed with her because she is here learning a new language. And in December, when she goes back to Belgium, she's going to go and stay with a Dutch family to learn Dutch. So she'll be trilingual, which makes me feel like a complete idiot. Every time I say, Merci! You know? <laughs> it's the best I got. Oh, and bon nuit! <laughs> Good night! That's it. I'm learning little phrases here and there. God is teaching us the language of faith. He's teaching us to trust Him. He could make it all seen, all known, and truly He gives us all the evidence we, we need, but He's teaching us to follow Him by faith. To put our faith in Him as opposed to all these other things. Spiritists, mediums, consulting the dead on behalf of the living. and don't do that. Science, technology, things that even in those realms are unknown, unseen. You can put your trust in those things, but why do that? When you can trust and believe in the living God. By faith. Now, Paul is going to go on in 1 Corinthians 5 and explain why this is so vitally important to understand. And if you want to hear that, come back Wednesday night and we'll talk about those things. But I need to say this here. This is the thing I have not addressed. Paul has been talking to and about Christians. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Is a promise to believers in Jesus. To those who are Christians who, by the way, are not a better people. We are not smug, self-righteous saints who somehow attain to heaven by our goodness. That's a that's a crock of chili. <laughs> we are just people who, as the Bible says, have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. That's it. What is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? The Christian believes in the love of God. The Christian believes, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And this is the thing I wish I could avoid and don't want to say out loud, but I have to. Outside of Jesus, there is no such assurance. Without Jesus, everyone is going somewhere when we die. Do you know where you're going to go? Should you die tonight, will you immediately be at home with God, at home with the Lord? Is there any question of life more significant than this? I know many of you are laboring over your vote As if that's the most important question to face us this next couple of weeks. It's not. This is the most important question. Do you know where you're going to go? And I'm not trying to freak anybody out. But I need to say to believers, every one of you in here have friends and family who don't buy this. And you know where they're going to go. What are you going to do about it? You going to shrug it off? You going to laugh it off? You going to ignore it? Oh, Rick, I've tried. I've gone to this person. I've talked over and over and over about it. Then start praying like you've never prayed before. Don't don't dismiss the power—the most powerful thing you have—and that is to pray for your friends and family who don't know Jesus, who don't understand this truth, who, as we talked about Wednesday night, still have a veil over their eyes we will all strike camp when you do the question is what will be your clothing what are you going to wear what will be your dwelling your eternal home i, I want to let jesus close this out for us if you'll turn in your bibles to john chapter 5 we will end there john chapter 5 john 5:24 5, truly truly i say to you he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's the promise. That is a marvelous promise. It's secure, rock solid. And he says, and does not come into judgment, but he has passed out of death and into life. Remember, immortality swallows up mortality. You pass out of death and into life. But listen to what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Wait a minute, wait a minute, Rick. See, Jesus says the dead are going to hear the voice of God and will live. But I thought you said the spirits are already at home. How does that work? All you need to do is know Greek. The wording here, the language is absolutely specific in the Bible. God doesn't leave things to chance and to confusion. Jesus says an hour is coming and now is when the necros will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The necros, the word necros is very clearly corpse. The corpse hears the voice. Jesus says a day is coming when all of the dead bodies, the corpses, are going to hear the voice of Jesus and they will rise. But the Spirit is at home with the Lord. Right! And I don't have time to go into all of this, but read 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. We'll get to that actually in short order. We're going to be in Thessalonians. And we will explain that even further. At that point, Paul says, the dead will rise. He says God will bring with Him the spirits of those who have died. Because the Spirit is already home with the Lord. Right? What Paul just says. But the dead, the corpses, will rise... And God will instantly glorify that person in eternal dwelling, the mortal swallowed up by immortality. And then He says, for those alive, when that happens, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds and we will meet the Lord in the air and forever be with the Lord. You die right now, your spirit is with Jesus, the body goes into the ground. But at the time of the rapture of the church, when the living at that time are caught up, before we go up, the dead, up they go, put together in the twinkling of an eye, glorified in eternal dwelling. And we will meet them and be with the Lord forever. And that is a word of Comfort, Because Paul says, comfort one another with these words. But listen, so Jesus says, The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave the Son also to have life in Himself. I am the way, Jesus says, and the truth, and the life. Life is Jesus. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He's the Son of Man. Do not marvel, Jesus says, at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice, and all will come forth, those who did the good to a resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. Don't be confused. He is not saying if you're good enough, you're saved, and if you're evil enough, you're condemned. The good that Jesus is talking about here, he has already defined for us, and it's in verse 24 where he says, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's the good. You know, truly outside of Jesus, the only good thing I ever did in my life was trust him. Since then, every good thing I've done, I've done because of him, through him, by him. But that choice, that decision, that's the good. That is the good choice that you can make. Brothers and sisters, family and friends, this tent will not last. It will be torn down. We will all strike camp. Choose Jesus and you will live.